I got nothing. Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. So it seems like for the first time I was right. <laughs> In what sense? I was expecting this season to be very unpredictable and diverse and it was yeah i have an impression that for probably the first time of all the eight seasons that we did this one generated even more questions than answered yeah uh, yeah. yeah definitely there are mm. leads to follow yeah time permitting mm-hmm. you know like one of the questions that got to me was okay we are talking about intuition and where's the difference between intuition and instinct Let's, should <laughs> have asked it at the beginning, not at the end. Yeah. Another thing was that I started reading a book recommended by uh, one of our guests, David Wiener, recommended before this season. Uh, I just didn't get to read it earlier, which is called How We Learn. And there's actually a lot of talking about intuition and how intuition is truly a part of how our brain operates which is absolutely fascinating, but that one was investigated only a little bit. Yeah, I think we had a, the most diverse lineup of guests this season. <laughs> yeah, and you know, like what I really liked is that we got quite a few people from the arts world, from different disciplines of the arts world, and then we've got people more from design and business, uh, and that kind of gives a very interesting overview on the perspectives of what intuition is did we really get more art people than usually let's think yeah we've got Anne morgan a writer we never had a writer before (laughs) (laughs) i was thinking about artists the flavor of artists that Uh we had before and Uh a writer would be basically a new category for me but you are right (laughs) this is also an artist okay we'll take it broader yes but i don't want to send a, an impression that this season is about arts only. By far, it isn't. No, no, not at all. Actually, what we started with was uh, our friend. I was thinking that just the third Polish person we've got on the podcast, uh, David Wiener. Mm-hmm. He is a cognitive scientist, a philosopher, and a psychiatrist, and a design researcher. So it was a very nice combination to to understand a little bit more of what intuition is all about. And I think that he had the most precise definition of what it is. I also think this conversation went the deepest of all of them. It's one of the conversations, maybe I don't remember it the best, but I definitely have some big questions raised after this. Like, you know, does free will exist? Do we have free will? Right? We discussed this kind of stuff with him and it's, it's, it's been really fascinating. Mm. He did left me with more questions than I had before <laughs> that. <stuff. laughs> That's true. <laughs> and you know, like the thing is that his breadth of knowledge and the way he connects the dots between the different things is like truly fascinating. I think we could easily have 
a complete season marked just David Wiener and just, you know, <laughs> eight conversations with him. <laughs> there are more guests like this that we could do the whole season with. That's true. So what really stayed with me from this conversation was, was something that me and David, we've been discussing earlier, which is whether our brain is a reactive machine or a predictive machine, whether we have a something that's called predictive or anticipatory brain, or do we have an instinct that makes our brain react to situations? There is a lot of new research about it. And I think that this is for me the first time that I can see research that's related to my field that's being altered and changed and turned upside down. And it's absolutely fascinating. What I also found really interesting during this conversation was I always had this distinction somehow in my brain between, for a lack of a better word, hard sciences like, you know, physics, chemistry, when you actually run experiment, you can repeat it and it turns out exactly the same. And then the social sciences, like the psychology. <laughs> Re repeating Sheldon Cooper from yes. Big Bang. <laughs> psychology proved once again to be a doofus of sciences. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say that experiments are not predictable there. But what I realized this time around is that if you think about a neuroscience, which is very closely connected to psychology, right? I mean, because this is like the reactions of the brain. It's again this hard science look in a way because the brain works in a certain way. And we're just trying to find a model that describes it best. And your question, you know, whether our brain is reactive or a predictive engine, it's not that question. It's, you know, which model suits better? I mean, the brain, it is what it is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. By the way, speaking of the doofus of science, <laughs> it's... This is a, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but a very small one. But I must say that I was absolutely fascinated when David said that there is a book which is called The Weird People. And it's about what type of people is the psychological research built on. And that was really fascinating that it's actually built on the very much Caucasian Let's be frank, grad students of psychology, <laughs> right? Yeah, from North America and uh, Western Europe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's actually not so much a book. It was, I think, a serious article in Nature. Both. Both. Mm -hmm. Okay, that most of the experiments in that field are just... Skew. The subject is very, very skewed. Yeah. I mean, there are many more spoilers there for people <laughs> who are more into science. Let's not... Let's not spoil it. Yeah, at <laughs> least right. not all of them. <laughs> all right. We plan the season that you have the groundwork put by David, and then you have a round of artists sharing their stories about what intuition is for them. And then we've got people more from business and design who tell their story. So there is a, a bit of a grouping happening here. So the first part starts with an actor, Gunnar de Young, who I've met through something that is called the Experience Design Challenge where we were doing crazy stuff in Berlin, in an old distillery. The distillery was sadly closed. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was actually... Not, not functional. Yeah, it was an abandoned distillery from the 80s. It was turning into a, an artist space, a really cool artist space. And we were allowed to spend five days there doing some crazy immersive theater performances with, with a bunch of people. 
but he's not talking about this. <laughs> we did pull his tongue a little bit about his career, but it's not what the episode is about. So actually, a lot of this episode is about how the theater and the acting world is changing these days from much more passive world to something that's very participatory and even something which is called the device theater, which is basically a way to create plays based on the intuition and the creativity of the actors rather than to have a script of the play itself. But it's not the same as improv. There were differences, right? Yeah, that was very interesting. Mm. I didn't know about all these divisions and differences in that world. We touched a lot upon education and lifelong education and <laughs> um, the whole story about genius, <laughs> which I am not going to spoil. And actually kind of thinking back into Leonardo da Vinci and his way of intuitive learning as a way to approach the world today. Okay, next was a person who was very important to you. It was Anne, right? Mm -hmm. Anne Morgan. Anne is a fiction writer, fiction and non-fiction writer, actually, which is very interesting uh, because her first book seemed to have found her and it was non-fiction rather than fiction, mm -hmm. although she always saw herself as a fiction writer. Anne was my mentor when I was writing my book, The Umami Strategy. And I must say that it was an adventure of a kind. And, you know, like I've been thinking that we talk a lot between ourselves about the idea of apprenticeship. And I think that in so many ways, what I was doing with Anne was me being her apprentice and learning from her based on her expertise and her knowledge and her insight, how to write an engaging book. There was a bunch of topics that we've been discussing on intuition. But what was really very interesting for me was to see how she describes getting into a book. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, there's a lot of things being said about how to write a book. But the whole thing is like, how do you get to begin to write a book? How do you decide that you are a professional writer? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also finally got a chance to ask the question that was popping to my head more in the context of maybe film scenarios, but for books holds the same, that I know that there are patterns that normally a story should follow to be engaging, also like interesting, not bore you. Mm -hmm. So you're talking like a hero journey, for example. For example, that's mm -hmm. one of them. I was really super curious how important this is, because since you started writing your book, we talked about this a lot and also uh, with Jerica. Mm -hmm. So I became sensitive to these twists and plots, but surprisingly, it doesn't spoil the pleasure of watching these movies. But I wanted to know how important are they and whether you can just kind of mechanistically construct an engaging story. And I did ask this question to Anne and she gave a very satisfying answer, which I'm not going to tell you now. Mm -hmm. And just to explain who Jerika is, Jerika Cleland, she's a director and she was our guest in season one and she will be hopefully a guest in the next season. Mm. I will have to find a slot with her that she can get into her car and drive somewhere where the 
internet reception is decent. <laughs> yes, yeah. so probably we, we need to wait when the winter is over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> If the winter is anything like what's going on here right now. Okay, Katie, I wasn't there. Yeah, you weren't there. Unfortunately, you you had your knife skill course. Yeah, that was the weekend when you yeah. were making a knife for me. <laughs> so I got some intuitive art <laughs> coming my way. Well, making a knife for you was a gift from you to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So you kind of gave yourself a knife and two weekends free of your husband. <laughs> yeah, which in pandemic actually <laughs> is, is a gift of, of its own, right? <laughs> It's worth more than the freaking knife. <laughs> by the way, the knife turned out really good. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Maybe the picture for the outro should be with the knife. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> oh, we have to clean it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in use, although I was really shy to use it at first because Lukash told me that I have to keep it very clean and I cannot put it into the dishwasher and mm. stuff like this. No, I never did. <laughs> no knives in dishwashers. No. <laughs> and I cannot keep it wet and all these big list of restrictions of how not to treat that knife. <laughs> Well, I learned that's how you treat every knife, apparently. So we have been really bad with our knives for yeah. years. Okay, Katie. Coming back to Katie. So Katie is a, a visual artist, but also she's a director of an artist space here in Warsaw, which is called Stroboscope. What is very interesting is that Katie is a, an American of Polish origin. So her parents or her grandparents were Polish. Or at least her grandfather was Polish, thinking about her family name, Zazinski. And Katie decided to come to Poland just to, you know, see the country of her ancestors quite a few years back. I think it was about five years ago. And somehow she stayed. She's running this space called Stroboscope, which is a space that allows voices that are not quite heard in Poland, especially these days, because I don't know if how many of you know, but uh, the situation in Poland is complicated. Anyway, so they are creating space for those artists that ask difficult questions. So in a way, for me, the easy direction of this conversation was to go whether art is neutral or political. Mm. Like, is it something that is supposed to raise those questions or maybe should stay away from it and just be this aesthetically pleasing, engaging thing that, you know, catches your eye and all that. Where we got with it was very interesting because at some point Katie said that running stroboscope is actually her art. So there's one way of creating art pieces that are provocative and then ask questions that should be asked, but also creating a space that allows and enables those questions to be asked is something that's very artistic. So that, that was one part of our conversation. And of course, the other was about intuition. And actually, we talked a lot about serendipity, your favorite word. <laughs> Try to say serendipity. No. <laughs> It's somehow like you have an issue with this. <laughs> I have a few of those. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we've talked a lot about that. And we also talked about the fact that intuition is something that we are not really encouraged to learn these days. She was talking about her family roots and how her family was much more focused on 
the analytical skills and school is focused on analytical skills. And suddenly you end up in a situation when you realize when you are, you know, over your 30s or sometimes 40s that, hey, there is this thing called intuition and it's kind of banging <laughs> the door and the door stays closed. And how do you open the door and how do you learn to have a relationship with your intuition somehow? Yeah, that was the conversation. And there's one super cool story there. When Katie goes for 10 day meditation, silent meditation, let me add, not really having a lot of experience with meditation and how do you survive 10 days in isolation with no words and 10 hours of meditation a day. It's a really cool story. <laughs> okay. And then after Katie, we've been talking to Yuan Wang. So this is changing from the world of arts into the world of design and design leadership. Yes. <laughs> I don't think it was necessarily design leadership. True. She is a person of Chinese origin. What I remember, she finished her master's in China and then she moved to US. Yeah, to Carnegie Mellon. I don't know how she did all of that because at least on the camera, she looked really young. <laughs> <laughs> so she must have been really speeding through that. Yuan was a little bit of a Da Vincian person to me. We talked about art as well. Yes. There was a nice bridge about actually her art and how she tries to get out of her head and more go with the intuition in her paintings. Uh, but we also spoke a lot about her leadership, which is focused on people who are normally underrepresented in the managerial or leadership position. And she would take anyone, but preferably women and people of color. Yes. It was very interesting to listen to her explaining that it's not enough to just hire these people who are underrepresented into your organization, but you really have to create a space for them to feel listened to and to feel part of the family. As she was telling that, I was really thinking that this is such a brilliant observation and I've been thinking about, you know, us living in the Netherlands and going to a Dutch party and everybody speaking Dutch when we didn't speak Dutch. So this is, you're kind of invited to the party, but you can't really understand anybody. But I was also thinking about some of our clients who are Polish speaking and they hire a number of uh, English speaking people. And suddenly the big question is like whether the culture should change and everybody should speak English. And then you were mentioning a company that you know? Yeah, a friend of mine is running a remote company. So it's, he's in programming, they're completely remote. And they decided that the only way for, at that time, foreigners to feel welcome is that everybody speaks English. At the moment, we're the first person who wasn't speaking Polish arrived. I'm not sure if he has anyone speaking Polish these days besides him. Well, maybe there is two of them. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but they, they really introduced and enforced the rule that if more than two people communicate, it should be English, whatever the subject. And with two people, it's still okay. If you share common language, then you can do it in whatever it's more convenient. And I really thought about this for a moment because I'm involved with another organization who is going to face that choice soon. But that company is like, maybe two people in a company who don't speak Polish. But it's really worth thinking how you make these people feel 
Well, let me say it differently. I really like how Yuan uh, phrased it, that being hired is like being invited to a party, but then the whole point is to get invited to dance. And that's the really good uh, metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I loved it. And, you know, like I've been thinking that this is this is a challenge that's worth investigating further at some point, because especially when we think about encouraging diversity and encouraging different voices and different opinions, this is something that's super difficult in a sense that even if you have the people of the same culture, like it happens in Poland often, but they just come from different perspectives, like from business or from technology or from design, like you put them together and suddenly there is more of disagreement than agreement happening there. So this whole thing of encouraging diversity that goes beyond, you know, like we are not shooting each other opinions and there is no way to say no but, but yes and, uh, which is of course a very good trick, but it's just just the first level of getting there to embrace the different voices and the different understanding. And you know, like now that I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of thinking that it's connected to slowing down a little bit. Because when you are always in a rush, it's easy to try to get to the solution that is clear and understandable for you so you can execute on it. And listening to other people and finding those differences and seeing what they bring, it requires slowing down. And that kind of brings me back to this point that David was making about the slow and fast intuition. That sometimes we need to speed up and sometimes we need to take the decision in a split of a moment, but actually in many, many situations, the whole idea is that if we slow down and we give the space to listen to as much intuition, as much as voices of people who are different from us. Yeah, having time for that, it's definitely necessary, but it's not enough. I can imagine easily two people discussing for hours and not converging at all and still thinking in the back of their minds that the other person is stupid and wrong. Mm-hmm. So there's, there is more at play here. But it was interesting to notice indeed that the notion of diversity, if you look especially how UN experience in US, it's something very different than in Europe, at least in Poland. Mm-hmm. And there the, the prejudice against black people is still visible in Poland, we don't have it. We have a very homogeneous society from that perspective. Mm-hmm. But a- as you said yourself, when it's about bringing different views together, there are definitely lessons to be learned both ways from this more extreme situations to something like, you know, discussion at the office, that it is about the listening and thinking that your ideas are not necessarily the best. Maybe they are. But, you know, let's let's check it. Mm-hmm. I've been recently reading the series of lectures by Richard Feynman. The title is The Meaning of It All. <laughs> Quite a, a narrow title, right? <laughs> and the answer is not 42. <laughs> not, not 42. Something that he said that, that really triggered me is about looking for falsification of your opinions rather than for confirmation of your opinions. 
And this is something that we've also talked in the first episode in the context of intuition, that cognitive biases is something that we should really discuss and we do discuss it. However, I was really thinking that if we get into this mindset of looking for falsifying our opinions rather than for confirming our opinions, we might actually be onto something with mm. the diversity and appreciation yeah, of definitely. other people's opinion. Definitely. Mm. Okay, speaking of Netherlands. Yeah, right. Bernd. Uh, yeah, our next guest was Bernd Merbeek. Bernd is a product owner for IoT solutions and the R&D manager for UX and Living Labs at Signify, which makes intelligent light solutions. This is a bit of your old turf, right? Well, we both have met Bernd when we were living in the Netherlands, right? But you spent quite a few years in the same lab at uh, Philips Research, mm -hmm. at, back at times when Philips Research was research. Yeah, good times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But actually what was very interesting for me talking to Bernd was that he pointed out why this old model of research that we both embraced quite a lot because mm -hmm. it was giving you a lot of time to explore whatever you wanted without any restrictions or boundaries or business applications <laughs> or these kind of oh, things. I wasn't that free, but oh, yes, at the beginning it yeah. was like you could really follow your own interests. Exactly. And then he's digging into why this model doesn't work anymore. And we already had a conversation about it with David Milan from IBM Research two seasons ago, like yeah. season, yes, season six. David had this observation that the traditional industrial research is over because the competition is higher. So basically the monopolized markets don't exist anymore as much, although if you look at Amazon, you wonder. So Bernd, in a very much the same venue, he was mentioning that right now, because the world is changing so fast, you cannot allow yourself to have so much time for doing research. You need to do it in much faster cycles, in a sense. Still, there is place for intuition there, maybe even more. Yeah. Actually, that was very interesting because he mentioned intuition from a perspective of being an expert. Mm -hmm. That sometimes it's maybe even more reliable to rely on the... More reliable to rely. My Jesus, I'm tautologying here. <laughs> anyway, but you can rely on, the, on an expert opinion when they saw a lot of things rather than to run research and figure everything out from the start because sometimes the experts are able to see things that others may not find. This is also something that we touched upon in this first episode with uh, David. And I didn't compare it really with intuition when we were having our intro episode wondering what will happen, but wisdom is something really close to intuition. I can empathize with what it is. We've met enough people who were wise, but I never realized how close this notion is to intuition. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. And I must say that it was really fun to dig into the old research about ICAT <laughs> <laughs> and talk about this crazy little yellow creature with its eyes moving with the faces and being sad and being happy. And actually, that was another part of what Bernd was talking about. And it was more about his PhD research, which was how do you apply personality 
as a way to design intuitive interaction for mm -hmm. IoT solutions. That was really fascinating. Yeah. I also remember, I think we talked with Bernd a little bit about uh, management or leadership, but his point of view is rather different from many of our guests, besides Clara, because these are people who became leaders and managers. They evolved from experts. Mm -hmm. Both of them are working in Netherlands, which has very flat hierarchical structure in a company. It's also very refreshing if you are coming from a country like France or US or Poland, how you can approach leading people in a very, don't want to say intuitive, but kind of human way, rather than if you are uh, finished some school, you are a, what of the school? Graduate? Yeah. Alumni? Yes. There are many ways to lead and manage people. And if you are an alumni of a, of a business school, definitely do this differently than if you rose from the expert position and being one of the guys, basically. So now let me explain again, Clara Otero. We have a conversation with her, I think it's season five. Four even. Or even four. Yeah. yeah. And Clara used to be Wukash's boss. She was my colleague, then she was my boss. Yeah, yeah. back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> one of the best bosses I had. Mm. Okay, then we go east and south and we connect with a person from Israel. Yes. Karen Suk. Karen is a founder and the CEO of a consultancy called Wisdom to Lead. And she is a propagator of something which is called mindful leadership. So we go very much into leadership in that conversation. Again, we talked about slowing down there because I really loved her quote. I'm not sure if she quoted someone or was it her that busy is the new stupid. <laughs> yeah, it was the quote from Warren Buffett, I think. <laughs> oh, from him even? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. That's guy with some credits to his successes. Yeah, actually, she mentioned this tiny video that uh, is connected to the notes in this episode. Uh, it's a conversation between Bill Gates and Warren Buffett when Warren Buffett was apparently mentoring Bill Gates at some point. And um, Warren Buffett showed Bill his agenda, you know, like it was a paper agenda. So a tiny one, <laughs> the tiny one. And the thing is that like you look through the pages and it's empty <laughs> because he said, like, I cannot have my days filled up with meetings because I have to have time to think. <laughs> and Bill was really laughing. And he says that at the time he felt that being busy meant that he was being perceived as important. And then only then he realized it was actually really stupid because people were eating up his time, time that he had for creating the stuff that he wanted to create. So yeah, that's a very interesting mm. observation. That's also something that I know, but I'm not sure if it comes from our interview with with uh, Jorgen. We had a conversation with him in season one, I think even season, or, yeah. or mm -hmm. two. And he was a CEO of like by far most successful telecom in Poland. And he said he had like four meetings a week, six meetings a week. Something. A day. Oh, a day. But yeah. they were half an hour each. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So apparently successful people, they have lots of free time in their agendas. That's true. But Karen was also about mindfulness mm -hmm. as a leader, that this leadership starts within you. Mm -hmm. And also she was really talking about breaking through the automatic behavior that uh, so many of us have. 
that was actually connecting with this busyness that if you're really busy, then you go in your default mode and then you keep on doing the same thing over and over and over again. While when you change into reflective mode and you are able to basically look how you behave, this is the first step to change your ways and to change the way you approach the world. She was talking about another thing that was really fascinating for me. She had this observation that there is no such a thing as work-life balance anymore, Mm -hmm. that it's work-life integration, especially with this pandemic. And then we should stop talking about dividing these things, but start thinking about how to integrate this for people so they feel happy to have this blended a bit more. That was very interesting observation. It's one of those observations that is so obvious in hindsight, yet few people arrive at it themselves. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, actually, we were recently doing a series of strategic workshops with your employer and my client. (laughs) And uh, someone mentioned this thing that uh, we should uh, strive for work-life balance. And I immediately had this this sentence, this observation by Karen in my head. And I was thinking, we we have to discuss it with them definitely at some point. Yeah, especially in that company, everyone is really putting away more hours than it's healthy in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, last but not least is Carola Vershor. Carola is a writer. She wrote a book, Change Ahead. She is also a designer and a coach. And she's running a company which is called Transformational Studio. And basically the idea there is to provoke organizations so that they transform into the organizations they really want to be. And this is something that connects to a lot of conversations that we had in the previous season about change, Mm -hmm. where a lot of our guests mentioned that the old capitalistic way of running business is wearing off Mm -hmm. and that there is a need for a lot of companies to transform into these new entities that are driven by much more purposeful goals. Yet it is a super difficult thing, especially when people are taught to think in a certain way. So basically uh, what Carola was talking about is that this change has to happen and growth has to happen. We actually had a lot of discussion about what growth means. And the thing is that Sometimes it's going to be painful, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, the thing is that some companies require revolution. So like they need to be like turned upside down and changed and really go through this like very rapid transformation. But for a lot of organizations, this transformation is a more evolutionary process. You get there step by step. And then, you know, like over time you arrive at this new shape of the organization. And all of this can happen through questions. What I really absolutely loved, and I think that was something that also triggered you, was that as consultants, we have a tendency to sometimes come with answers, but actually this is not our place. Our place is to ask questions that nobody else dares to ask. And she was also talking about intuition in a sense of more matriarchal way. She was actually referring to the shamanic culture in Argentina. She's Argentinian by origin. She was explaining how this culture of praising Pachamama, 
So our earth is something that's very much embedded into Argentinian culture and something that really drives her as a person. And from this, what she mentioned, which I really liked, was about the head intelligence. This is something that we are trained at school. That's very much what UN and also Katie were talking mm -hmm. about. And also we have this bodily intelligence. Our body tells us a lot of stuff about how we feel about things and what we should do. <laughs> and the thing is that we are not really quite trained to listen to that, right? Yeah. yeah. We are probably trained out of using it. Mm. It's probably even worse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is something that Yuan was mentioning, mm -hmm. that in China, when she was educated, you were supposed to have this logical, very analytical approach to everything, uh, rather than learn how to deal with your talents and skills and art and intuition. Yeah. So kind of a naive idea that we might have here in the West, in the Western culture, is that the East is more oriented towards, you know, body and mind and more holistically looking at this. But it seems like the education system in, in China is exactly like it's, it's here and what I hear about America. Mm -hmm. Just the best summary of this is by Seth Godin. Is it going to be on the test? Yeah. Most important question. It's really not about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that we've been untrained in in the Netherlands. Remember your story about your class on signal detection? Yeah, it was a course we had to take about digital signal processing. Oh, yes. Yeah. And we got, uh, not going to go into the details, but we did this and we presented our solution to the professor. And then he said, well, I let you pass, but I'm really disappointed in, you know, in the outcome. And we were really surprised. And upset, I would even say. Yeah, because we did everything correctly. I mean, there were no errors there. And only after a longer talk, the professor told us, which we were completely unaware of, and it was quite obvious for, to him that he gave us a problem to solve that hasn't been solved. They didn't know how to do this. And we just went through the emotions of how would you approach this problem. And then so we did everything that should be on a test. If it was a <laughs> test, we ticked it off. It was fine. But we didn't find a new way to do this. But we are not looking for a new way to solve it. We basically found a way we thought we should approach it. And we did this as the outcome was to explain what's wrong mm -hmm. and not to find a way for it to work. I think there was a bit of the culture that we've got also from Poland that you do something to satisfy the teacher. Oh, yeah. Rather than to follow your curiosity. Which very nicely links to our next season, which is about daring. Do we dare to start this season? <laughs> well, see. <laughs> it can take us in very much uncharted territories again, right? Well, it should. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's not daring. <laughs> should be about us daring to do something, not only <laughs> asking other people. We'll see. Yeah. So, season eight, themed intuition, is officially over. We hope that you are going to enjoy it. And of course, as usual, we would love to hear what you think. Yes, Thanks. please. Thank you very much. And let's connect soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. 
we would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. What was the unexpected thing for you from this season? I have three. Shoot. One was that there's actually a scientist working with shamans in Chile to translate their knowledge into more scientific approach. And then he runs a school called Four Winds, I think. That was one. The second thing was whether we do or don't have free will. The third one was about the fact that actually all our psychological data can be completely skewed because it was tested on the very same, very homogeneous group. So maybe we actually don't know anything about how people function in the world, like generally. <laughs> how about you? I also have three. One is that we only had a small sample, but it seems like consistently the most intuitive decision that people take in their lives is choosing a partner for life. <laughs> yeah, that's insane, right? <laughs> And let's say we subscribe to that opinion, right? Yes. <laughs> the second one was, it was early because it was with David, is that my idea of what the intuition is was completely wrong. Because I remember in our intro, I was uh, telling how I had to start trusting my intuition. It's kind of a slow process of trusting more and more as if the intuition is something that is irrational, which it isn't. But there is a huge third area that could be called intuition. And this is the stuff that is happening in your head when you are not thinking consciously about the problem. We all had these moments when you're walking a dog, having a shower. I know how to do this. And that part of my brain, I was trusting for years. I mean... <laughs> I've been half of my career around the, the fact that, you know, I just feed it something and after some time, solution pops out. And I didn't connect it with intuition, but it's pretty much the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the third? And the third one, I forgot what it was. <laughs> <laughs> There was something else. <laughs>